Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. I am surprised that when you wrote your book, you didn't call me because I could have helped you. This is Dave Tremblay. He was hired by the Astros as the third base coach for the 2013 season. I'm not the only journalist who's disappointed him. I was waiting and waiting when this thing came out with the Astros, I said, somebody's going to call me. Somebody's going somebody's to gonna figure it out and know that I'm a decent guy and I have no problem talking to people and being honest. Somebody's going to call me. Trembley was hoping to get a call about the Astros because he has some strong opinions about them. And he certainly has opinions about his boss in Houston, Jeff Luno. Had you ever been around anybody like him in baseball? Never. 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 Mm -mm. By the time he joined the Astros, Trembley'd had a lot of jobs in baseball. A scout, a minor league manager, even the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. He'd spent nearly three decades working in the game. You know, at that point in time, I was in my 60s and had eaten more damn peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, ridden more damn buses than they could ever shake a stick at. He'd worked with hundreds of players, coaches, and executives, but he'd never encountered anyone remotely like Jeff Luno. Looked like a Wall Street guy. (laughs) He looked like a businessman, dressed very nicely. He was very prim and proper, but very guarded with what he said. He just gives you the impression that he wasn't going to put his guard down. He wasn't going to let anybody get too close to him. The culture was different. The culture was very distant. You know, if you weren't part of the the group, you know, uh, I equated it to almost like Secret Service or FBI. According to Trembley, Luno did make one thing crystal clear to everyone who worked for him. I think Jeff was very upfront with saying it's a new wave of baseball people, and he was out to change the way the game was played and change the way the game was run. And he was very very uh, steadfast in that approach. Bringing in the new wave of baseball people meant that much of the old wave had to go. Luno fired people, a lot of them, dozens over the course of his first few seasons in Houston. I remember a guy that had worked with with the Cardinals. When I asked him, I asked him, he said, tell me about Jeff Luno. And he said, yeah, this guy's the most cold-hearted guy I've ever met. If he had to fire his mother, he would. But Luno also hired people, even more than he let go. They weren't baseball lifers, but outsiders who'd never been given a chance before. One of them told me that for anybody with ideas that were dismissed by conventional people, Jeff was the manager that you'd been waiting for. Luno's vision of change also meant losing games, as he sought to reinvent the organization from the ground up. He stripped the roster and the payroll, which dipped to the lowest in the league, down to $26 million by opening day of 2013, only about a tenth of what the Yankees spent. 2013 was the year an already terrible team became the Disastros, the Butt Sliders, a punchline for sports analysts. If there's any guy that the glass is always half full, it is our guy, Sean Casey. The mayor there in camp with the Astros. Are you about to do the unthinkable and predict the Astros <laughs> anywhere but last place in the AL West? You know what? Not 2013, I'm not. I mean, they're, they're going to be in last place in 2013. They're going to struggle through the season. We won 51 games and lost 111. It took its toll on a lot of people, I think, mentally. It was our job as coaches to keep the players upbeat, keep working with them, which we did. And I remember when the season was over, we we finished the season in Houston at the end of the 2013 season, and I walked through the clubhouse shaking guys' hands and just telling them, hey, you guys made it through. Lunauers, they never came, hey, guys, we really appreciate what you did. Or I never heard anything like that. 
you would think, hey, you, you have any idea what we've gone through here? Trembley wasn't the only one who bristled at the human cost of Luno's plan. In May of 2014, the Houston Chronicle published a story headlined, Radical Ways Paint Astros as Outcast. One anonymous Astros player told reporter Evan Drellick, I don't think anybody's happy. I'm not. They just take out the human element of baseball. It's hard to play for a GM who just sees you as a number instead of a person. Jeff is experimenting with all of us. The story quoted Luno, saying, We're not running for election here. It's not a popularity contest. We're trying to win big league games, and we're trying to produce major league players in the minor leagues. So if those two results are occurring, that's predominantly what we care about. Behind the scenes, the Astros' management was furious about the article. But Dave Trembley says it accurately summed up the feelings about Luno and the Astros' front office in some quarters of the league and in parts of the Astros' clubhouse. I think it's common knowledge that the Astros and their organization were perceived not in the greatest light by other teams, by their front offices and coaches and people that uh, have worked there. How come or how so? Because they, they, they're kind of like off on their own island. You know what I mean? They're off doing their own thing. They give an air of mistrust. We're going to do it our way, different. We're going to blatantly change the way things have been done uh, with no regard for people that have been doing it this way for a long time. Before the 2014 season, Luno had hired someone to run his reimagined advanced scouting department. It's the department that studies upcoming opponents to help players and coaches strategize how to beat them. Dave Trembley remembers meeting the new hire, whose name was Tom Koch-Vaser. In fact, he can't forget it. Guy came up to me and he introduced himself, nice young man. He said, yeah, I was in Seattle last year. He said, Dave, I just want to tell you. He said, we had all your signs last year. I said, what? He said, we played you guys 18 times. We had the signs. So he said, you're going to understand that this is the way the game's going. Kochvazer had revealed that when he was with the Mariners' advanced scouting group, they'd analyzed video to crack the regular sign patterns used by Trembley and the Astros' other coaches, a warning to Trembley to be careful because other teams were likely doing it too. This wasn't illegal per se, not if the footage the Mariners had studied was from past games as opposed to real-time live video. But the practice was new to Trembley and to him suggested future trouble. This guy got hired by Lou now to come over to put in all the video stuff in, in its infancy. And it started with all this. In early September of 2014, Trembley was called to Luno's office. Luno had just fired the Astros manager, Bo Porter, and Trembley, Porter's right-hand man, knew what the meeting was about. Trembley had sensed more change was coming. He'd actually stored two fully packed suitcases in the clubhouse in case he was let go, so he could get out of town fast. Luno's assistant GM, David Stearns, met Trembley downstairs. And, uh, you know, we walked up to... Jeff's office and just sat there and he was very calm and he said well you know we let Bo go and I said yeah I said I know you're going to make a change with me too I, I understand I have no problem with it and he asked me and David Stearns asked me what can we do different here they both asked me first time I've been there two years and I said you guys got to get along with people a little bit better Jeff, you got to walk through the clubhouse and be a little bit more personable and let your guard down a little bit. Tremblay wasn't a Luddite. He understood the promise of many of the strategies and technologies that Luno was bringing to the Astros. What he objected to was the culture, the secrecy, the lack of sentimentality about how things had always been done, the corporate focus on efficiency and profit above all. 
To Trembley, it was as if there'd been a hostile takeover of America's pastime, and it no longer had room for someone like him. But beneath the organ music and Cracker Jacks, baseball had always been a tough business, one in which its workers could lose their livelihoods in an instant. A tension between tradition and change had been ingrained in the sport from the beginning, with entrepreneurs trying to find the next competitive advantage, the next way of doing things. In fact, Jeff Luna wasn't the first person to try to bring big change to baseball in a city that had long attracted wildcatters and trailblazers and stargazers, Houston. I'm Ben Ryder, and this is The Edge. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When the big league teams start limbering up in spring practice sessions, you can be pretty sure that winter will soon be on its way out. The Houston Astros, however, couldn't care less about winter's nip. They are working out in their new all-weather stadium. Long before Jeff Luno brought his vision for the future of baseball to Houston, the town became known for a different sports innovation, the world's first domed stadium. It was the vision of a man named Roy Mark Hoffheins. Here's Hoffheins in a 1976 documentary. He's an enigma to a lot of people. People don't know what Roy Hoffines is. What is it? That probably is a fellow that works harder and longer than the next fellow. But you never get known for that. What makes you work harder and longer than the next fellow? Well, I want to get something done. Hoffines was entirely self-made. Born in 1912, he rose from his humble beginnings as the son of a laundry truck driver to become one of Houston's great men a judge at 24, a millionaire at 35, the mayor at 40. He was larger than life, known for the cigar he always toted, a waistline that eventually expanded beyond 50 inches around, and even bigger ideas. To this day, all you have to say in Houston is the judge, and many people will know who you're talking about. He'd walk in a room and you could just feel his presence. It was just an aura. This is Deanie Hoffheins Anton the judge's daughter. He was kind of an amazing human being. He was almost like from another planet. When she was a girl in the 1950s, Deanie and her already famous father would often spend what little downtime he had watching baseball games. The biggest team in town was the minor league Houston Buffs. But the judge wanted more for Houston, a major league club, the very thing to transform its reputation from hinterland jerkwater, his words, to an international city on the make. There was one problem. In the summer, Houston was a terrible place to play baseball, as anyone who attended Buffs games knew. The heat, the humidity, the rain, the mosquitoes. But Deanie had an idea. So we were riding home one night in a storm, and I was kind of in a not very good mood about it. And I, I, rarely, I rarely got bratty, believe it or not. But I just said something to the effect, well, you know, Daddy, why can't we play baseball inside? I remember he kind of pulled off the freeway and asked me to repeat myself. He said, what did, what did you say again, little doll? Deanie's idea for an indoor stadium won Hoffines and Houston their team in 1962. For the first three seasons, they were known as the Colt 45s and played outside in misery 
as the architectural marvel that had clinched the judge's bid for an expansion club rose next door. Then, in 1965, everything changed. The team got a new name, the Astros, in honor of its city's new distinction as the home of NASA's manned spacecraft center. Even more importantly, the judge's fabulous new ballpark was finally ready. It was called the Astrodome. The players say the new park bats a thousand, no sun in their eyes, and air-conditioned comfort. As for the fans, can't you just hear them say, hey, it's raining out, let's go to the ball game. The Astrodome wasn't just one of the wonders of the world, as the Reverend Billy Graham called it, but filled with wonders, too. They included the world's first electronically animated scoreboard, called the Astrolite. The scoreboard is a $2 million item that's a show in itself. When the home team pulls something spectacular, like scoring the winning runs, there's no holding that mechanical marvel in center field. Employees wore 53 different kinds of uniforms, including groundskeepers who wore spacesuits and spacettes who showed fans to their seats. Behind the right field fence, there was an elaborate penthouse suite and office for the judge himself, which he outfitted with a golden telephone, a golden carpet, golden faucets, and 26,000 pounds of art he'd imported from Hong Kong, Thailand, and the Middle East. Sports Illustrated once described the look as early whorehouse. The judge didn't mind that type of criticism. Some people describe, uh, describe this as being rather gaudy. What do you think about it? Well, it was designed to make you remember it. Call it what you will, but don't forget it. Most unforgettable was the Astrodome's roof. It was 208 feet high and made of 4,596 panes of clear lucite to allow sunlight to nourish the playing field. It's leveled and carefully sodded with a special strain of Tithway Bermuda grass cultivated for growth in the controlled light and atmosphere of the domed stadium. Then the judges' team started playing there. There were problems from the start. First, the sun created a glare when it streamed through the roof. Players dropped fly balls so often that even Johnny Carson started joking about the team, as Deanie Hoffines remembers. Oh, we'd say, big wonder, big blunder. They think they had everything covered, but you can't play ball if you can't catch it. So the judge had the lucite panels covered with 700 gallons of off-white paint. Now his players could see the ball. So problem solved. But what hadn't been thought of at the time was that that would cut the sun from hitting the grass. So the grass started to die. So at one point, my brother and I were down helping the groundskeepers spray painting the dirt green just to keep it green enough to get through the weekend day games. No problem for the judge. He replaced the grass with a brand new product from Monsanto. The stuff would be named after the first pro stadium ever to install it. AstroTurf made its debut on April 18, 1966. And it not only changed the game, but the meaning of the word groundskeeper, too. The groundskeeper became famous in his own right. He and two imposters even made an appearance on To Tell the Truth. Uh, number one, what did you do to the panels lately? Painted them. AstroTurf, it turned out, was rock hard and gave players bad hops and rug burns. But still, the Astrodome was a smash. Millions of people flocked to it, even when the Astros weren't playing, often just to stand inside it. The dome drew the type of national attention to Houston that the judge had hoped for. President Johnson has just arrived in uh, President Judge Hoffine's box, high over the stands in right center field. Almost all the fans here, I would say all of them looking in the direction of the president, uh, in the box, high over the right center field stand, and giving him an ovation. All walks of life of people from all over the world came to this city to see this magnificent spaceship that had landed in the Texas prairie. And anybody who was anybody, whether it was your your favorite actor and actresses or singers or, or well, of course, all the astronauts were already here, all the greats in our day wanted to come and see it and wanted to have their picture taken in it. The judge's vision expanded. In 1968, he opened an amusement park next to the dome. 
It was advertised with a theme song written and performed by his then 25-year-old daughter, Deanie. Astro World, Astro World is the wonderful world of fun, fun, fun. Astro World, Astro World, where the going has just begun. The judge could build anything, except for one thing, a winning team. Well, we were having a hard time. We had a hard time getting started. We, we really did. How much did he want a winning baseball team? Oh, come on. How much would you want a winning baseball team if you finally got one in your hometown after blood, sweat, and tears? How much would you want a winning team in your place? I mean, that's the point. I think he was very disappointed, but he didn't express negativity. There was always next time. There's always tomorrow. Always next season. We'll get him. But tomorrow never came. By 1975, the Astros still hadn't even made the playoffs once in 14 years. The stadium's novelty had worn off and attendance plummeted. And the judge, now in debt and wheelchair-bound due to a stroke, lost the stadium and the team to his creditors. The stroke changed things quite a bit. He wasn't there to make the decisions, create the ideas. He couldn't do all of that anymore. It was tragic. It was very tragic, I must say. It was sad. I felt so bad for him. What I felt the worst about was how how the Christmas card list gets cut down. You know, you're getting all these, over the years, hundreds and then thousands of Christmas cards and all. And that melts away. That struck me. Isn't that funny? That's the one thing that really strikes me. I don't know if he even noticed. He probably did. He didn't miss much. You mean cards sent to him? Yeah. Like he had died before he died, you know? When the time comes for somebody to write down about Roy Hoffines in a history book, uh, you can be remembered in an awful lot of ways. A politician, a lawyer, county judge, a sportsman, promoter. How would you like to be remembered? Just Roy Hoffines, I think. What's his legacy? Houston. Put Houston on the map. Really did. Two things. Astronauts. Astrodome. Made Houston a major part of the world. The judge died in 1982. In the decades after he'd lost control of them, the Astros found moderate success beneath the dome. They even made the playoffs six times. But a World Series championship eluded them. And it continued to after the team left the Astrodome in 1999 to move into a new ballpark downtown with a retractable roof. The ballpark was sponsored by a company whose innovative strategies promised another new future for itself and the Astros. No matter where you watch or who you talk to, the city of Houston hit one out of the park on opening night at Enron Field. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jim, what is, um, in terms specifically of the baseball operation, what have you determined to be the first order of business for you in terms of what you're going to do in terms of baseball? 
Um, starting Tuesday, you know, we get in the office, we're going to review everything. Now, in November of 2011, 29 years after Judge Roy Hoffines died, the Astros were purchased by a shipping and logistics tycoon named Jim Crane. Uh, and we'll make some very, very quick adjustments. I think by the end of, uh, right after Thanksgiving, you'll see us make a few moves. But, uh, Crane's ruthless focus on speed and efficiency had allowed him to turn a company he started with a $10,000 loan from his sister in the early 80s into an empire worth billions. At Crane Worldwide Logistics, we pride ourselves in the knowledge that we put our clients first at all times. The service that we provide is underpinned by the Crane way that we adhere to every single day. Jim Crane had just paid more than $600 million for the worst team in the league, a team which still hadn't won a World Series. He wasted no time in beginning the search for a new leader for his newest investment. He called me immediately and said that he had received a recommendation for me and wanted to interview me for the job of general manager. And this was probably hours after they had dismissed the current general manager. Jeff Luna was 45. He'd grown up watching baseball in the 70s, and he'd never forgotten the feeling of the stadium in which he'd attended his second Major League game. I remember walking into the Astrodome and really uh, being startled at the color of the turf, the the bright lights, the fact that it was an indoor arena. All of that was uh, jarring, but in a really incredible way. Luna went to the University of Pennsylvania and then to business school at Northwestern, where he usually won his fantasy leagues because he always seemed to know which minor league prospect was about to come up to the majors and make a difference. But it was just a hobby. Back then, there was no road into real baseball for an outsider like him. So he went into business, first as a consultant for McKinsey, later as the founder of a Silicon Valley startup called Archetype Solutions. Archetype made software that allowed people to order custom-fitting clothes from big retailers. An early problem was that customers kept under-reporting their own measurements, particularly around the waist. So Luno's company designed algorithms to deliver them jeans that actually fit. Anytime you're asking people to provide data and you don't have accurate measurements, it's going to be uh, dirty data. There's going to be some real nuggets in there that are important if you're going to get it right but there's going to be areas where you have to really try and figure out where the miscalculations are and and how to correct them. So learned a lot about human nature, about self-reporting, about data, data cleanliness, and how all of that can be used in a way to make a product that people want. When Luna was 37, he finally saw a path into the industry he'd always wanted to join, a path that had never before existed. I read the book Moneyball in 2003, And I started to think about the impact of technology in baseball, the impact of analytics in baseball. And in the back of my mind, I started to think that there's probably a new breed of executive that's going to make their way into baseball. But I thought to myself, gee, wouldn't it be interesting if I could take my knowledge in technology and business and apply it in baseball? How much fun would that be? Through a connection at McKinsey, he got a call from the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals, who'd read Moneyball, too. Soon Luna was running the Cardinals draft with the help of Sig Dell, a former NASA engineer and Lake Tahoe blackjack dealer, who had sent in his unusual resume. Together, they intended to double the number of Cardinals draft picks who would prove talented enough to make the majors. The key was a technique called regression analysis, which in essence uses past data to algorithmically make more accurate predictions about the future. Traditionally, big league clubs like the Cardinals had relied solely on their scouts' expertise to guide their picks. Sig could sort the scouts' good information from the bad and incorporate it into his probabilistic models. They named his system Stout, half stats, half scouts. The idea was not to side with man or machine, as the rest of the baseball world seemed to be doing, but to get the best out of both. Not long before, Luno had been using similar techniques to deliver properly fitting jeans to his customers. Now he was trying to deliver future stars to the Cardinals. Really, it's um, concepts that have been used in finance and in business 
where you use past performance to predict future performance. It's used by financial analysts all the time. It's not always right. You're just trying to be a little bit more correct than your neighbor that you're competing with. So in a way, you're kind of breaking down each player into a data set as if he were a security almost. Yes. Luno and SIG did incredibly well. Between 2005 and 2011, they drafted more players who would become big leaguers than anyone else in baseball. But it hadn't been a smooth process. The Cardinals were a traditional and historically successful organization, and their scouting department was populated by baseball lifers who liked the old way just fine. And all of a sudden, they look up and their leader of their department is a guy who was designing custom clothing two years before and setting up manufacturing facilities in Hong Kong and Costa Rica to make pants. Over the years, Luno acquired a couple of nicknames within the front office. Uh, well, I, one of them was the accountant, which, you know, I took plenty of accounting classes in business school and undergrad. And so uh, if that means that I'm able to add numbers and the, the answer's correct, um, I was okay with that one. Even so, he wanted more. He wanted to control an entire organization and run it his way. So when Jim Crane, the new owner of the Astros, called in late 2011, Luno was already prepared. He quickly updated a 24-page document he'd begun writing years earlier, a sort of manifesto about how to build a modern baseball organization, and he overnighted it to Houston. When they met, it was clear that Crane had read the document carefully. Luno could see that he'd marked it up. As their interview was winding down, Luno asked a question. One of the questions any candidate for a leadership job should have are, what are the constraints? And um, when I asked that question, he had a notepad in front of him, and I thought, oh boy, he's, he's prepared to answer this question. And he ripped off the top sheet and handed it to me, and it was blank, so I turned it over, and it was blank on that side too. And the message he was sending is, there are no constraints, So kind of whatever it takes. Yeah. People like Dave Tremblay hated the changes Jeff Luno brought to the Astros. Not just the lack of sentimentality for baseball orthodoxy, but particularly the impersonal corporate nature of the culture. The thing was, the Astros needed change. It wasn't just that the organization had the worst major league roster. They had the worst minor league system, too. They not only had no present, but no future. The first piece of Luno's plan was the big one he had pitched to Jim Crane in his 24-page manifesto. The turnaround wouldn't happen fast. In fact, if Crane wanted long-term results, things would get worse before they got better. The reality is the more you invest in, in winning today, it comes at some sacrifice potentially in the future. We could have traded the few prospects we did have in order to improve five or seven games, but that would have ultimately been very destructive for the organization. We tried to win every game, we celebrated every victory, we lamented every loss, but the reality is the deck of cards we were handed at the end of 2011 was not one that was gonna result in a playoff team in 2012 or 2013 or 2014. Luno might have tried to keep up appearances by, say, spending money on veterans the fans loved. But those would have been dollars that he then couldn't spend in the future on a club that might actually have a chance to win. And so the Astros fielded a team that very few people watched. Even though Houston was now the fourth most populous city in the country, by 2013 the Astros had the fourth worst attendance in the majors. But behind the scenes, Luno was building a different future. He hired the engineers, programmers, and mathematicians who formed a new research and development department. Their leader was Luno's very first new hire, Sig Dell, the former blackjack dealer and NASA engineer who'd been his head data man with the Cardinals. Here's Sig speaking at a convention in 2014. I'm an analyst. I work with four others that are analysts, and the five of us together, if you saw the movie Moneyball, uh, we are that overweight, socially awkward kid. <laughs> This was the group I'd seen in the conference room on that first day I'd embedded with the Astros front office in 2014. The one that called itself the Nerd Cave. Officially, Luno named them something else. Something that caused people around baseball to roll their eyes because they thought it sounded so ridiculous. 
the Department of Decision Sciences. We called it Decision Sciences on purpose because we didn't just want to do research and development for the sake of research and development. Anything we did, we wanted to make sure that everything was targeted towards helping the decision makers make better decisions. The name annoyed people because it sounded both pretentious and jargony. This was baseball, not a consulting gig. But Luna wasn't going to change how he did things because he believed, he knew, his process got results. Luno started instituting some really specific changes to the way things had always been done, like the shift. Instead of standing in the same general area for each hitter, the Astros fielders would drastically move around the infield, guided by data that showed where each particular batter was most likely to hit the ball. Traditionalists hated the shift too, but eventually everyone in the league started doing it because it worked. It's pretty tough to hit a ground ball between first base and second base with four fielders over there. The Astros started drafting players nobody thought they should. The league was stunned when they selected a Puerto Rican high school shortstop named Carlos Correa with the first overall pick in 2012. But Correa was the rookie of the year just three years later. Drafting the right players was just the start of it. Luno's Astros eventually started training their players differently too, to help the players get the best out of themselves and the Astros to get the most out of their investments. And really the battleground has shifted in baseball from player acquisition and player evaluation to player development. That really became the area of most value for the Astros all the way through present day. Technology held the answer. Take pitching. A good baseball pitch is really a matter of optimizing physics. It travels at a certain speed. It spins on a certain axis and at a certain number of revolutions per minute. Usually, the more RPM, the better. Traditionally, coaches attempted to teach players to throw better pitches using anecdotal rules of thumb. This grip might work better. Justin Verlander seems to throw it this way. But the Astros invested in Doppler radar technology that could reveal the ideal spin rate and axis for each pitch. They could also show pitchers exactly how their fingers behaved when they released the ball, thanks to their purchase of high-speed cameras made by a company called Edgertronic. You can think of the Edgertronic as a microscope for time. If you go up to a pitcher and you say, I need you to improve your spin rate or change your axis of rotation, uh, they're going to look at you like you're nuts because they don't know how to do that. But if you show them a video of Justin Verlander and how he grips the ball and you compare that video to how this pitcher grips the ball and you overlay them and you show the deliveries and you show the ball and then you show the data, then you get a willing customer who says, oh, I see that. Sometimes Luno's dedication to the data led him astray. During spring training in 2014, an underperforming 26-year-old outfielder named J.D. Martinez had sworn to Luno that he had completely overhauled his swing during the offseason and was seeing great results. But Luno had data showing that 26-year-olds almost never got better. So he cut Martinez from the team. A few days later, Martinez returned to Astros camp as a member of his new team, the Detroit Tigers. And his swing definitely looked different. That was the buzz around Astros camp. J.D. Martinez just hit three home runs against his former teammates. Part of me said, uh-oh, what have I done? The rest is history. He became one of the premier sluggers in the league for the past uh, six, seven years. It stung, but Luno didn't beat himself up about it. A probabilistic strategy doesn't guarantee every decision will be correct. The goal is to get more decisions correct than your competition. That's the edge. All you can do is go to bed at night knowing that you did the best you could with the information that you had and you made the best possible decisions and you're going to learn from the outcomes. And if there's something to learn, you're going to incorporate it so that next time around, it's part of the, um, the calculus. Luno gradually surrounded himself with people who were less resistant to what he was trying to do than guys like Dave Trembley. Before the 2015 season, he hired A.J. Hinch, a manager that bought into his process. Here's Hinch, interviewed on MLB Network a few months after he joined the Astros. Uh, what about the level of information, though, that you get with this club? It seems to be at another level. Well, what do you think? Word on the street is we get a little bit more information than most. <laughs> so and how you apply it is the real competitive advantage in my eyes. 
So we, you know, we obviously have a department that, that uh, provides all the information that we need. I absorb that. We hand it to our coaching staff, uh, who then hand it to the players. So it's, it's a way to, uh, to try to find that competitive advantage. The bottom line is this can help you win. Like Judge Roy Hoffines, Jeff Luno was in show business. The show he wanted to put on didn't involve spacettes or 26,000 pounds of imported art, but the thing that had always eluded the Houston Astros. Winning. To win in modern baseball, you needed every edge you could find. And for an edge to keep being an edge, it had to stay a secret as long as possible. Winning was what mattered. Do you love winning too much? No, I don't. I, I, I love winning. Um, we all have the same objective to win. And the notion of winning, replacing other things that are important doesn't apply to me. I mean, you, you, you want to win and you want to do it in a responsible way. Um, you want to do it in an ethical way. Did you ever step back and worry that, you know, all the disruptive philosophies and techniques that you kind of drilled into the organization might have unintended consequences? Sure. I mean, change is difficult and change creates um, resistance. I think anybody who implements change um, is going to be subject to some resistance and, uh, quite frankly, potentially some unintended consequences. In episode one, I told you about the incredible run of bad luck that the Astros experienced immediately after my Sports Illustrated cover came out in June of 2014. The injuries, the flood, the fire, the series of events that suggested even the worst baseball team in modern memory might have fallen victim to the Sports Illustrated cover jinx. Almost none of those things had lasting repercussions, but one did. The Astros' internal database had been named Ground Control, an homage to Houston's ties to space exploration. It was the digital brain of the organization, containing all their statistical projections, all their scouting reports, everything. In the summer of 2014, it was revealed that Ground Control had been hacked. Private notes that Astros executives had made about trade talks with other teams were leaked onto the Internet. It's probably similar to how people say they feel when there's been a burglary in their home and their, you know, the drawers in their bedroom have been looked through. It's a, it's a violation. It hurt even more when Luno found out who'd done it. Back when Luno was with the Cardinals, he had a guy in his staff named Chris Correa. When Luno left for the Astros, he didn't bring Correa with him. In 2015, Luno and the rest of the world learned that Correa was the hacker. All right, new developments in a budding baseball scandal. Federal investigators have recommended charges be filed against at least one employee of the St. Louis Cardinals. At issue, did that unnamed person help take computer information from a rival team? This comes as the team's director of scouting, Chris Correa, was fired. But the team's... I felt a little bit, uh, uh, well, I felt quite a bit disappointed and tried to understand, you know, why. In many ways, Correa's life had mirrored Luno's. He was a polymath, a kid computer programmer and musician who went on to study cognitive science, psychology, and education. Baseball was just a passion, one nurtured by his family's seats in the right field stands at Fenway Park. As a PhD student, he learned to use computers to create and analyze enormous sets of data. In 2007, he saw on the internet that the Cardinals were searching for someone with skills like that to help Jeff Luno find hidden gems in the draft. He got the job and proved to be very good at it. He was a guy that I had talked to, even directly to about if I ever get a GM job sometime, I'd love for you to be part of the team. Um, I didn't ever make a request to hire him because after I hired Sig and Mike Elias, my access to Cardinal employees was essentially shut off for a couple years, rightly so. Um, so I never made any requests for anybody else. But Chris would have been on the list of people I would have asked for. Prosecutors showed that Correa had hacked into the Astros system dozens of times over a period of two and a half years, accessing reams of their information. Correa tried to explain to the judge that he'd done it to confirm his own suspicion. 
that Luno and the other former Cardinals employees had improperly taken the Cardinals' data to Houston with them. Correa believed he'd found proof. The Astros have consistently denied that they took any intellectual property they shouldn't have, and the judge was incredulous about Correa's explanation. You broke into their house to find out if they were stealing your stuff, he asked. Correa replied, stupid, I know. The former director of baseball development for the St. Louis Cardinals leaves federal court after pleading guilty to hacking into the Houston Astros computers without permission. 35-year-old Christopher Correa did not respond to my questions as he left court. In MLB headlines, former St. Louis Cardinals scouting director Chris Correa has been sentenced to 46 months in prison for hacking into the Houston Astros computer database in 2014. Correa pled guilty in January to five counts of illegal access to a protected computer. The league expected to penalize the Cardinals. I started writing letters to Chris Correa in late 2017. He was now inmate 04550479 at the federal prison camp in Cumberland, Maryland. Eventually, Correa wrote back, and in June of 2018, I drove out to see him. Wearing a dark green prison uniform, Correa looked paler and thinner than in any photos I'd seen of him. He'd lost 35 pounds, and his wedding ring was loose on his finger. He told me the same thing he told the judge that he truly believed that members of the Astros' front office had taken the Cardinals' intellectual property to Houston. It's always been hard for me to believe that no one else in the Cardinals' front office knew that Correa was hacking the Astros or conspired with him. But Correa refused to implicate anyone else in his crimes. And the authorities, both the feds and Major League Baseball, zeroed in on Correa from the outset. Although the commissioner's office fined the Cardinals $2 million and forced them to turn over two draft picks to the Astros, everyone else was individually cleared of any wrongdoing. And Correa, who was sentenced in July to 46 months in federal prison last July, issued a lifetime ban from Major League Baseball. I found myself thinking a lot about Chris Correa recently, about the punishment he received, which always seemed extreme, even to members of the Astros' front office. But also about something he told me when I visited him in Cumberland, that when he was rooting around in ground control, he always thought of it in context of a game, a game that allowed all sorts of activities that would be impermissible elsewhere, like intentionally throwing a retaliatory fastball at a batter's chest, or, as Correa told me when I interviewed him, like stealing signs. But I think that what Correa hadn't accounted for was how baseball's powerful new tools and strategies and the secrecy and paranoia that came with them had smoothed the edge between gamesmanship and cheating so that an otherwise upstanding person could lose sight of how far past it he'd gone until it was too late. When you think about it, Chris Correa's life-changing thinking error, as he called it, was the same one that the Astros would themselves make the one that would eventually undermine everything that Jeff Luno built. Here, one more time, is Dave Trembley. It was like the old movie or the play Damn Yankees. The guy's going to sell a soul to the devil. They wanted to get the carrot at any cost, and they went too far. And now they got to they gotta live with it. They got to live with this the rest of their lives. Chris Correa had to live with what he'd done in federal prison. There, he couldn't even watch baseball anymore. The other inmates preferred basketball and football, and it was a bad idea to change the channel on the communal TVs. Correa didn't mind. As Jeff Luno's Astros began their miraculous ascent, Correa didn't really want to watch baseball anymore anyway. Our credit music this week is called Texas Soul. It's courtesy of the song's writer and singer, the Houston Hummingbird, otherwise known as Deanie Hoffine's Anton. Next week on The Edge. Major League Baseball brought the snake into the Garden of Eden and then 
were surprised when the players took a bite of the apple. It ain't just traditional country. It ain't just rock and roll. Something been growing for a long, long time, and we call it Texas Soul. Texas Soul. The Edge is presented by Prologue Projects in partnership with Cadence 13. The show is produced by Sam Lee and me, Ben Ryder, with editorial support from Madeline Kaplan and Ula Culpa. Our executive producers are Leon Nafok, Andrew Parsons, Chris Corcoran, and Stephen Fisher. Our score is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Andy Christens. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks. Fact-checking by Francis Carr. Special thanks to Bob Aspromonte, Din Mann, and Jeff Winningham, who kindly lent us his 1976 documentary, The Pleasures of This Stately Dome. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Something been growing for a long, long time And we call it Texas Soul Texas Soul Gospel country with a man blues And a taste of Mexico Texas Soul I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.